Hello, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemary Ankwe, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Voice, Blavity News, The Root, Ebony, and News One. The first story is titled, Residents Moving In to Rosa Gragg Duplexes. Work starting at Bernice Hutcherson Triplexes. Written by P.G. Grigspore, G-R-I-E-K-S-P-O-O-R. The Voice, formerly The Community Voice, November 25th, 2022. Residents moving into their homes at the Rosa Gragg Duplex community near 25th and Arkansas are being greeted with significant upgrades. Ragged carpet and scratched linoleum has been replaced by long-wearing, beautiful vinyl plank tile that closely resembles hardwood floors in appearance but offers durability and easy cleaning. Each one-bedroom unit has an open flow from living room to kitchen with a small insert for a home office space. Refrigerator and apartment size range, like the durable finish upper and lower cabinets, are brand new. Because they are intended for senior citizens, all bathrooms have walk-in showers. All fixtures are brand new. Windows have been updated, walls repainted, electrical systems have been updated, and hot water heaters and HVAC units are new. We're pretty proud of what we've been able to do here, said Roanoke construction worker Mitchell Stewart. I've been in on doing demolition, and some of it has been really nasty, he said. To be able to bring people back to what we've been able to do is really rewarding. I think our residents are really going to enjoy their new spaces. The one-bedroom units are small, but open enough that limited mobility residents can move around easily. The small home office space in the living room is accessible, even by wheelchair, and the bedroom and bathroom doors are wide enough to accommodate walkers. A limited number of units are fully ADA compliant, allowing wheelchair users to get into every room, including bathrooms. The units are intended for one or two tenants each. They are accessible from the outside without steps, and parking spaces are provided for residents who have a car and are able to drive. The ADA units have lowered counters and workspaces in anticipation of the needs of handicapped residents. Of the 30 units at Rosa Gragg Complex at 25th and Arkansas, 18 are complete. Some are already occupied and the final 12 are being renovated. The community room, which houses a community gathering space and laundry facilities and an office space is still under construction, but expected to be completed in the next 60 days. When Rosa Gragg renovation is complete, Roanoke crews will move to the Bernice Hutcherson development at 20th and Wellington Place to start work on the triplex units there. Residents will be relocated at city expense during the renovation process. Renovation work there will be similar to Rosa Gragg, with renovations to infrastructure made first, 
followed by renovations to flooring, windows, window coverings, lighting, and decor. The complex features seven buildings, six triplexes, and a community building slash clubhouse. There is an abundant green space and a covered picnic area behind the community building, which also has laundry facilities, bathrooms, and an office. Plans for a wheelchair ramp that will make the basement level of community buildings at both Rosa Gregg and Bernice Hutcherson complexes accessible to residents who need to use a wheelchair. For residents wanting to rent units in public, now Section 8, Housing Projects, the application process has changed. The complexes are now managed by the Mennonite Housing, but the occupancy rules and requirements have not changed. Top priority goes to seniors 62 and older, followed by 60 and older disabled, 55 and older disabled, and 50 and older disabled, then disabled at any age, and finally low income of any age. Applications for both Rosa Gregg and Bernice Hutcherson are open as well as for McLean Manor High Rise, located at 9th and McLean. Rosa Sadie Gregg was born in Georgia in 1904 and graduated summa cum laude from Morris Brown College. She went on to the Tuskegee Institute, University of Michigan, and Wayne State. She became an activist for racial causes and went on to be an advisor to three presidents, Franklin Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson. In 1947, with her husband, she founded the Slade Gregg Academy of Public Arts, the first black vocational school in Detroit. The Wichita Low Housing Development, named for her, was built in 1979. Bernice Hutcherson was born on April 14, 1925, in Newton, Kansas. She was educated in Wichita Public Schools and received a bachelor's degree from Langston University in 1950 and went on to graduate from Chicago Teachers College and received her Master's of Social Work from the University of Kansas in 1969. She had a five-decade career as a teacher and social worker, spending 20 years with Kansas Social and Rehabilitation Services before becoming a professor of social work at Wichita State University in 1970. She retired in 1996. After retirement, she continued to work as a volunteer. The Wichita Low Income Housing Development, named for her, was built in 1980. This article was titled, Residents Moving In to Rosa Gregg Duplexes, Work Starting at Bernice Hutcherson's Triplexes, by P.J. Grakes Core, The Voice, November 25, 2022. The next article is titled, Pop Hit Maker Irene Cara Dies at 63, written by Alexandra Jane, The Root, November 26, 2022. It is with heavy heart that we report the passing of the legendary singer and actress Irene Cara. Best known for singing the title tracks to 80s pop culture classics, fame, and flashdance, 
The star reportedly died in her home this week. Tara's publicist, Judith A. Moose, M-O-O-S-E, confirmed the news via her Twitter account early Saturday morning. Tara began her rise to fame, appearing in the 1970s children series, The Electric Company. It is with profound sadness that on behalf of her family, I announce the passing of Irene Cara, Moose wrote. The Academy Award-winning actress, singer, songwriter, and producer passed away in her Florida home. Irene's family has requested privacy as they process their grief, Moose added. She was a beautifully gifted soul whose legacy will live forever through her music and films. Cara's breakthrough role, of course, was as Coco Hernandez in the 1980 box office hit Fame, a film about a performing arts high school in New York City. The title song earned her a Golden Globe nomination and two Grammys. For Flashdance's What a Feeling, a song which Cara co-wrote and performed, the pop star received an Oscar for Best Original Song and a Grammy for Best Pop Performance Female. Other musical hits included Why Me and Breakdance. She also acted in City Heat, a film featuring Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood, and DC Cab with Mr. T and Certain Fury with Tatum O'Neill. The cause of death is currently unknown and will be released as more information becomes available. Kara was 63. This article was titled Pop Hitmaker Irene Kara Dies at 63, written by Alexandra Jane, The Root, November 26, 2022. The next article is titled, Michelle Obama Says, U.S. Wasn't Ready for Her Natural Hair, written by the staff, The Community Voice, by staff, The Voice, November 22, 2022. Black women in America know how relieved forever First Lady Michelle Obama considered wearing her hair in braids while living in the White House, but then she thought of the American people. Rocking her braids, Obama is now on a 13-night cross-country tour promoting her new book, The Light We Carry, Overcoming in Uncertain Times. Now six years removed from the White House, Obama says she made the decision to straighten and curl her hair during her husband's term as president because, in quotes, they're not ready for it, she said, recalling her thoughts at the time. Recalling the 20... 14 upheaval, when Barack wore a tan suit, Obama said she could imagine the fallout if she had worn her hair in a natural style. Like so many black women, Obama says she sacrificed the hairstyle she would have preferred to fit in and be accepted. She didn't want the conversation to be about her hair. It was more important, she said, to keep the focus on her husband's goals. Let me keep my hair straight. Let's get health care passed, she said, were her thoughts at the time. Obama said she recognized this as a dilemma Black women deal with on a regular basis, with many giving in like she did to fit in the workplace or society. While standards are beginning to change, Black women, and also men, are still dealing with discrimination around their hairstyles that aren't seen as conforming to white cultural standards. 
Earlier this year, the U.S. House passed the Crown Act, which stands for Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. The legislation prohibits discrimination based on someone's hairstyle, including those in which hair is tightly coiled or tightly curled, locks, cornrows, twists, braids, bantu knots, and afros. The bill stalled at the Senate. This article is titled, Michelle Obama Says U.S. Wasn't Ready for Her Natural Hair, written by the staff of The Voice, November 22, 2022. Next, a special article titled, The Journey Forward. On October 25, 2020, Sinbad suffered an ischemic stroke as a result of a blood clot that traveled from his heart to his brain. He was rushed into surgery at West Hills Medical Center that night, where his doctors performed a thrombectomy, T-H-R-O-M-B-E-C-T-O-M-Y, to remove the clot and restore normal blood flow to the brain. After surgery, Sinbad was talking and moving with some weakness, but the prognosis was very promising. The next day, however, another blood clot formed, half the size of the first. He underwent the same surgery again successfully, but it took a little more from him than the first surgery. He was transferred to Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, where the doctors indicated that his brain had begun to swell. They performed a craniotomy, C-R-A-N-I-O-T-O-M-Y, to relieve the pressure and reduce the swelling. During surgery, however, the doctors discovered a bleed. It was hours before the family learned Sinbad had returned to the neuro ICU in a medically induced coma and placed on a ventilator. The road to recovery had become unclear and extremely difficult for the family to navigate. It would be weeks before he would open his eyes, speak, or show signs of basic mobility. It wasn't long before we realized he couldn't move his left side or simply hold his head up. The more time passed, the more the family learned how much had been lost. For the next several months, Sinbad moved through acute care facilities where he was weaned off the ventilator and eventually cleared to start intense therapy. In May of 2021, he was admitted to California Rehabilitation Institute and began physical, occupational, and speech therapy. It was there Sinbad started to make considerable progress towards recovery. On July 7, 2021, nearly nine months after the initial stroke, Sinbad finally came home. He continues to receive therapy, fighting for every inch. His progress is nothing short of remarkable. Limbs that were said to be dead are coming alive, and he's taking the steps necessary to learn to walk again. In his own words, I am not done. I will not stop fighting until I can walk across the stage again, and neither will we. Survival odds from this type of event are approximately 30%. Sinbad has already beaten the odds and has made significant progress beyond what anyone expected, but there are still miles to go. Two years have passed since the initial event. The cost of therapy far exceed what insurance covers, and it has taken its toll on the family financially. Many of you asked what you can do to support us. We created this site as an avenue for those who would like to lend their support and contribute in some way. 
All gifts will go to the Adkins Trust to help provide for Sinbad's care and help him continue to fight this battle. The family believes without exception, Sinbad is here because of the multitude of prayers from all who know and love him. We are eternally grateful. Every outpouring of love and the memories of how he has touched all of you have not gone unheard, unseen, or unfelt. Thank you. You have lifted his spirits along the way and inspired the entire family. Thank God for everything he's given you, even if it's not everything you asked for. Thank God for family and hug the ones you love while you're still with them. We need each other to get through this journey. I can't wait to see you all again soon. As always, stay funky, stay prayed up. Sinbad. For donations, please Google Sinbad and log in to the family gift-giving site. This article was titled, The Journey Forward, The Story About Sinbad. The next article is titled, COVID isn't over, folks. Here's how to protect yourself. By Jessica Washington, The Root, November 7th, 2022. Many Americans have started to return to normal, or at least a new normal, since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. But just because we're now grudgingly back to our morning commutes doesn't mean the pandemic is over. As new Omicron subvariants continue to swirl around the country alongside typically seasonal illnesses like the flu, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is urging Americans to take precautions ahead of this holiday season. Get vaccinated and boosted remains one of the best ways to protect yourself against COVID-19 and serious illnesses, according to the CDC. However, the uptake for the new COVID-19 booster is still really low. According to the CDC, as of November 4th, less than 9% of the U.S. population has received boosters. As of now, boosters are still free, so if you haven't already run to your local clinic or Walgreens to get one, now is the time. We all know COVID-19 precautions can be a massive divide in families, but layering, but layering precautions that work for your family, such as testing, masking, moving activities outdoors, and ensuring good ventilation can help slow the spread of COVID-19 and other diseases. Knowing what variants are out there and what the symptoms look like can also be helpful. Omicron, characterized by its high infection rate and its many subvariants, is still the dominant strain of COVID-19 in the United States. The most common of those subvariants is BA5, which accounts for nearly 40% of all COVID-19 cases in the United States, according to the CDC. However, newer Omicron subvariants like BQ11 and BQ1 are also on the rise in the United States. And another variant entirely, XBB, has accounted for a massive surge in cases in Singapore, according to the New York Times. However, cases are already significantly down, and the CDC has yet to report any cases of XBB in the United States. The good news is, so far, there isn't evidence that Omicron subvariants lead to more severe illnesses than previous iterations of the disease. And according to the New York Times, symptoms are fairly consistent with previous variants. The most common, var <clears throat> the most common symptoms include a mild running nose, 
a headache, and a sore throat. If you're feeling symptoms, the CDC recommends getting tested ASAP. For those of us heading home for the holidays, it's worth remembering that COVID-19 isn't behind us just yet, even if we're feeling some serious variant fatigue. This article is titled, COVID Isn't Over, Folks. Here's How to Protect Yourself by Jessica Washington, The Root, November 7th, 2022. The next article is titled, How Student Loan Forgiveness Could Boost Black Home Ownership Rates, written by Bonita Gooch, G-O-O-C-H, The Voice, November 23, 2022. Six in 10 millennials who don't own a home say it's because of student loan debt, according to a 2021 survey from the National Association of Realtors. College costs skyrocketed in the last two decades. Average tuition between 2010 and 2011 and 2020 and 2021 school years rose nearly 31% at public universities and more than 41% at private universities, according to the Education Data Initiative. Students now pay an average of $35,551 a year. The debt has worsened the racial home ownership gap, which has widened over decades of discriminatory lending practices racist housing policies, and barriers to wealth for Black Americans and other people of color. These trends led higher numbers of students from marginalized communities to assume additional financial risk for a college degree. For many, loans make college possible. More than 45 million people in 2020 had student loan debt averaging 37000 $693 per person per education data initiative. These costs have made it difficult for many to afford a down payment on a home. The home ownership rate falls by nearly two percentage points for every additional $1,000 in student loan debt a borrower holds, according to the Federal Reserve. Stacker examined data from the Federal Reserve and the Department of Education to see how federal student loan forgiveness could boost U.S. home ownership rates, particularly among Black Americans. Because Black Americans have historically been unable to build wealth as easily as their non-Black counterparts, they're relying more on loans to obtain big-ticket items like higher education and home ownership. Higher student loan payments and interest rates hinder their ability to buy a home and can trap them in a cycle of inequality. In August 2020, the Biden administration announced it would forgive $10,000 in student loan debt, affecting about 43 million borrowers. Although total debt continues to increase, the growth rate de decelerated considerably. In 2013, the year-over-year -year change was 12.1%. Last year, it was 0.31%. The federal government paused federal student loan payments during the pandemic, which set interest rates at 0% and allowed borrowers to skip loan payments without the risk of late fees or default. This policy helped 4.7 million people lower their balances, 
but it's due to expire at the end of 2022. Analysts found that Black Americans face a cycle of inequality when paying for higher education. The report found that Black American households cannot build wealth at the same rate as non-Black households. This finding also means Black students borrow more money for college and have higher loan payments upon graduation, which reduces their opportunities to build wealth during their prime earning years. Hispanic Americans also experience a wealth gap, which fuels the need to take out more in student loans, according to Unidos US. Many Hispanic Americans are also first-generation college students, which can make it difficult for them to navigate the financial aid system. The Black home ownership rate, 43.4%, lags considerably behind white Americans, 72.1%, and has declined by nearly one percentage point since 2010, according to the National Association of Realtors. In fact, that gap is wider today than when the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968. Black households also lag in earnings, making only 61 cents for every dollar that comparable white households earn, according to an analyst, by the Economic Policy Institute of the latest Census Bureau data. With lower earnings on average, Black Americans are denied mortgages at double the national average, according to a 2022 Lending Tree study. Black Americans will often seek higher education to help increase their earning potential. Still, it's hard to take on more debt when student loan debt payments make up a significant portion of a monthly budget. Due to student loan debt, nearly half of Black Americans said they would likely delay home ownership. Black Americans face disparities in wealth building, and student loans have exasperated that issue. More than half of Black American households with student loan debt have no or negative net worth, about twice as much as those with no student debt, according to a Brookings Institute analysis. Student loan forgiveness would not eliminate the racial wealth gap, but could significantly reduce it. Loan forgiveness may also present more opportunities for Black Americans to afford homes and build intergenerational wealth consistent with the American dream. This article is titled, How Student Loan Forgiveness Could Boost Black Home Ownership Rates by Bonita Gooch, The Voice, November 23, 2022. The next article is titled, Black Mayors Will Soon Lead Five of America's Ten Largest Cities by Christopher Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S, Blavity News, November 27, 2022. While the midterm elections were disappointing for a number of high-profile Black candidates, including Stacey Abrams and Val Demings, there were important victories in other races. Notably, 2022 added to the growing list of major American cities led by Black men and women. As a result of this latest election, five of America's 10 largest cities will soon have black mayors. Here is a look at them. Eric Adams, New York City. Since taking office in December 2021, 
New York City Mayor Eric Adams has made quite a splash with his brash tactics and unfiltered comments as he leads America's largest city. Some of his stances have drawn criticism, particularly in his effort to tackle crime in the city. Adams, a career police official, has received criticism for his closeness to the NYDP and their handling of crisis, such as the April subway shooting. These include his opposition to drill music, in which he claimed the genre promoted violence. Less seriously, Adams' swagger-heavy persona even earned him a hilarious spoof on Saturday Night Live. Karen Bass, B-A-S-S, Los Angeles. Karen Bass, who has represented California in Congress, will soon join the list of prominent black mayors now that she has won the race for mayor of Los Angeles. As the Los Angeles Times reports, Bass is the first woman and second black Angelino elected to lead the city in its 241-year history. In order to do so, she defeated businessman Rick Caruso, who poured $100 million of his own fortune into his campaign. Bass, who was also chair of the Congressional Black Caucus in 2019 and 2020, and took a leading role in shaping the congressional response to the murders of George Floyd and others in, in 2020. Bass will now be bringing her experiences to her home of L.A. She announced that tackling the city's homelessness crisis and engaging in police reform are among her top priorities for Los Angeles. Lori Lightfoot, Chicago. The issues that Mayor-elect Bass plans to tackle are among the same challenges that have faced Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot since she took office in 2019. Mayor Lightfoot has had to deal with rising violent crime rates, which reflect concentrated areas of danger and racial inequalities in the city. These problems have been exasperated by various issues of police brutality and misconduct. All this has led Mayor Lightfoot to try out alternative strategies like new police training and employing non-police first responders to calls concerning mental health crisis. She also initiated cash payments and other benefits to assist Chicagoans facing economic crisis. With these challenges, Mayor Lightfoot faces a challenging election next year but she remains confident that she will be selected to, to continue to lead the nation's third largest city. Sylvester Turner, T-U-R-N-E-R, -E Houston. The longest serving mayor on this list, Sylvester Turner, has led Houston since 2016. Turner has led the city through challenges such as the devastation of Hurricane Harvey, after which the mayor received criticism for not evacuating the city. Honored several local superstars, including Beyonce, Megan Thee Stallion, and Scarface. And unbeknownst to his colleagues and supporters, Turner conducted his official duties even while battling bone cancer earlier this year. With term limits preventing him from running again, Turner is preparing to pass the city's leadership onto new hands. 
In the meantime, he continues to rep Houston as he did at the city's Thanksgiving Thanksgiving Day Parade alongside 50 Cents and Bun B. Eric Johnson, Dallas. Also in the great state of Texas, Eric Johnson has been mayor of Dallas since 2019. The mayor recently declared that Dallas is back during his annual State of the City address. This proclamation was meant to highlight billions of dollars in construction and infrastructure projects being conducted within the city or lined up for the near future. Johnson also pointed to a decrease in violent crime in the city, which the mayor attributed to increased funding for the police and other first responders, as he rejected calls to defund the police. Nevertheless, Dallas remains one of the major cities dealing with growing homelessness, among other challenges. But even with such remaining challenges, Johnson is confident in his bid to win re-election next year. This cohort represents a sampling of the black leaders who have shaped many of America's leading cities over the past several years. While some may be nearing the end of their service, others are just beginning to create their impact. This article is titled, Black Mayors Will Soon Lead Five of America's Ten Largest Cities by Christopher Rhodes, Blavity News, November 27, 2022. The next article is the cover of Ebony's November-slash-December 2022 episode titled Forever After, Letitia Wright, Lupita Nyong'o, Denai Gurira, Winston Duke, and Dominique Thorne return to Wakanda. Story by Corey Murray. Pictures by Keith Major. Wait, are we hopeful or sad? That's what Winston Duke jokingly says after creative director asks him and the Black Panther Wakanda Forever cast to look into the Klieg light for the group's next shot. Duke and his co-stars, Letitia Wright, Lupita Nyong'o, Denai Gurira, and Dominique Thorne, are nestled together inside Hard Rock Hotel San Diego for Ebony's digital cover shot. The cast cosmic synergy radiates for the next 90 minutes as they giggle at inside jokes and exchange anticipatory glances at how the Comic-Con audience across the street will respond to the first glimpse of their long-awaited sequel. Duke's quip causes everyone to break into laughter, but the sentiment is real. Will the film be a somber reflection of what will never be or a heartfelt celebration of the late Chadwick Boseman. Pressing the cast for clues goes nowhere fast. You don't want me to tell you everything. Come on, Gurira says with a wicked grin. What happens in Wakanda stays in Wakanda. That is until November 11th, when Black Panther fans return to the theaters, dripping in ceremonial white with accents of gold and purple to honor reverence for their fallen hero. Bozeman's death in August 2020 sent shockwaves throughout Hollywood because so many didn't know the beloved actor had been quietly battling colon cancer. Revisiting the Afro-futuristic world centered around his seminal character 
T'Challa required the heavy reality of the Marvel Cinematic Universe carrying on a franchise without its leading man. But for his on-screen family, Bozeman was more than a million-dollar star. He was their brother. Gurira, who portrays the fierce General Okoye, describes the circumstances of filming the sequel without Bozeman as being unprecedented and taking an emotional toll on the crew. There's a grief navigation that we were going through as we were stepping back into living in this world without our leader, our king, our brother. That was a really specific journey to take in. To take in it, she explains. For Wright, who's back as Wakanda's chief scientist, Shuri, continuing the celebration without her bro was bittersweet. I knew that he was in a better place, but I selfishly wanted him to still be here, with us, with me. But for myself, I used the film as a love letter to Chad. Every scene, every word I utter is with the fullness and with life as he would want me to live it, you know, as he did live. It was hard, continues Wright, who began producing films as well. But we all used the time to grieve together and support each other. We used the time to fuel the story with our energy, with our love, and with the power that was within us, because it had to go somewhere, you know. Filming during a global pandemic added another enormous weight to the process. But Guri found her way through by connecting Offset with Wright. She's younger than me, but that is a wise, powerful woman. But also by being still. We are definitely facing challenges, and I remember coming back to my home and being very quiet. I wanted to protect this thing, says the actress, who's also an accomplished playwright. We almost felt like somebody was trying to stop us from finishing this film, but it wasn't going to win. We pushed through and we got it done, and I'm very proud of that. Bozeman's untimely passing happened just as director Ryan Cooliger was deep into writing Black Panther's sequel. After deep reflection, the director and the MCU team decided against recasting T'Challa and leaning into honing the Bozeman spirit as authentically as possible. The director and his co-writer, Joe Robert Cole, went back to the drawing board and rewrote the film with the intention of paying homage to his dear friend and moving the Black Panther franchise forward. Once the MCU higher-ups were satisfied, production resumed in June 2021, but fans were kept in the dark about how a return to Wakanda would look and feel. This July, the wait was over when Cooliger and key cast members walked across the stage in the storied Hall H during San Diego's Comic-Con and presented the Wakanda Forever trailer. In a carefully crafted two-minute, 11-second teaser, backed by Tem's soulful cover of No Woman, No Cry, we learn the utopian African nation is mourning the death of its leader and must decide who will serve as its king and warrior, the Black Panther. This leaves them vulnerable, and a potential enemy comes to the surface in the form of Namor, a half-human, half-Atlantean fighter who has a rich history in Marvel comics. 
As the trailer ends, Kendrick Lamar spitfires, we gonna be all right, which perhaps assures fans that Boseman's send-off will be fit for a righteous king. Still, with T'Challa gone, who will take the throne? Who will protect Wakanda? Almost immediately, the internet began brimming with theories. Resurrect Killmonger with the heart-shaped herb. Create two or more Black Panthers. Bring in the White Wolf. Name M'Baku as king. Earlier this month, Marvel released the official trailer and seemingly put to rest the speculative chatter with an end scene featuring someone wearing a Black Panther suit with very feminine curves. But who? Shuri, Nakaya, Okoye, Ayo. Will it be one of the film's new characters, Riri, who's already beloved in the MCU as Ironheart or Anika, the ex-Dora Milaje, who helped create the equally badass Midnight Angels? The cast's lips are sealed. However, Duke, who plays M'Baku, isn't shocked Wakanda's national security is in the hands of a woman. Because for him, Black Panther's original story has always placed black women at the center. In the first movie, two black male figures were at the forefront, but the women were always the ones picking up the pieces. Duke says, Black Panther has always been about a mother grieving the loss of her husband and now has to support her son in ascension. It's been about the sister who's trying to keep up and create her space and a brother who has a presence that's larger than her. The women whose duty to their country has to take center stage over their own personal needs. A woman who has to support her country, do all the dirty spy work, and who can't just be with the man that she's in love with. Wakanda culture is deeply, deeply impacted by how the women in their world function and their responsibility. They're always ready to take up the crown or the spear. Gurira agrees that shifting the film's focus expands the canon of strong black women leads on screen. It's definitely a different story from the first one, as it must be. There's a lot of very powerful, rich narratives, and the beauty, I think, is that everybody has a very full story to tell in their own singular way, she says. Seeing black women get this type of storytelling and the idea that they're continuing and evolving and going through complex things is an ongoing component of a representation of black women. This movie accomplish, accomplishes that in spades. The reverence for Wakandan women is as palpable as watching the real actresses embody their characters on set. Hannah Beechler, the first black woman to win an Academy Award for production design for her work on Black Panther, knows Cougar created the safe space. He just loves black women, and I think he saw the power there, she says of the director who she partnered with on several firms, including Fruitvale Station and Creed. In the past, Ryan said that women are better storytellers and better filmmakers, and I'm not disagreeing. Along with herself and the film's leading women, including new cast members, Dominique Thorne as Riri and Michaela Coel as Anika, Beechler also found a sisterhood with returning costume designer Ruth E. Carter, who also won her first Oscar 
for designing the looks in Black Panther and returning cinematographer Autumn Durald Akarpal. We come on set some days and get into a circle and start dancing. Ryan would be like, okay, y'all done? You know we gotta shoot this thing, Beechler says, laughing. Thorne, who's making her debut, not only in Wakanda Forever, but also in the MCU as Ironheart, look out for her Marvel series in 2023, is still pinching herself from her first day on the set. My first scene I shot was with Miss Angela Bassett. I don't know if it's possible for you to set the caliber any higher, she says. Thorne knows a thing or two about high standards, as the rising actor was named the U.S. Presidential Scholar in the Arts in 2015. She found working on the sequel just as impactful because she said the original already established a safe haven for Black brilliance and Black excellence and an elevated telling of Black royalty. From that first encounter with Bassett, who befittingly returns as Queen Ramonda, Thorne says for her, it was a real commitment to telling this story in the best way and executing things as they exist in Wakanda. Barely any additional story details unveiled by the MCU, there's already a fever pitch of excitement at the addition of two Mexican actors, Tenoch Priorita and Mabel Cadena, who plays villainous first cousins, Namor and Namora, respectively. They already sparked enormous pride among Latinos when they made their appearance at the Comic-Con in July. What I love about Ryan and his vision for the story and storyline is how he's opened it up to another group of underrepresented people and the inspiration they have that has been taken from the Mesoamerican culture, says Nyong'o, who returns as Nakia. I know for a fact that the community is going to be invigorated by the experience. The Black Panther world has expanded quite exponentially in the second movie, and the multiculturalism is so specific to the African diverse experience and now to the Latin diverse experience. This film is going to be really, really powerful. To bring in an authentic Mesoamerican backstory, Beechler thoroughly researched their culture with the same intensity that she did for Black Panther. She created a 400-page production guide known as the Wakanda Bible for the first film and confesses she added another 400 or more pages for the sequel. Our underwater people are Talukan, and they're inspired by the ancient Mayans, she explains. I had to completely immerse myself 100% in talking to experts. I can't just throw up a culture, even if it's something that's specifically not that culture or inspired by that culture. You need to know the rules before you can break anything. You need to understand it before creating something that's an amalgamation of that or an evolution of that. When Black Panther premiered in 2018, it became the benchmark for Afrofuturism because it was rooted in the realities of, of African culture traditions and explored how an African country could exist that was never colonized or conquered. 
The film's worldwide box office made $1.3 billion and remains ranked in the top five MCU films and in the top 15 movies of all times. However, when Duke is reminded of this accolade, he quickly points out what's missing in Hollywood. The presence of Black Panther also eliminates the absence of investment in Black fantasy. Black history epics, Black grandeur, he says. I did a lot of traveling this year. I went to Rwanda, Central Africa. I went through all of Europe. I went through Mexico. There are a lot of people who are hungry for great content, but because there are these antiquated ideas of where the press tours go and where the main audience is going, he feels many communities around the world are getting a skewed reading of black storytelling. Duke asserts that if the studios would showcase films where people in places where they've dealt with colonialism and imperialism in the past and their internalized oppression is similar, the history of their shared experience would resonate and the people are going to feel it. He believes this is why the escapism of films like Black Panther and the historical The Woman King and even the aspirational Crazy Rich Asians are worthy examples of when antiquated narratives are broken down and presented in more global regions. The Yale University trained actor hopes the release of Wakanda Forever and its anticipated financial and cultural impact will be a continued catalyst for the change that we need to see in all the industries that we're in. Duke concludes by reciting one of Baku's breakout lines from the first film, It's Challenge Day. Although a 2020 study from the Anberg Inclusion Initiative states that the number of Black directors working in 2019 nine movies, was not different than in 2007, eight movies. There have been great strides made by Black creatives since the Black Panther's release. The global success of the 2018 film, ushered in by the Ryan Cooliger effect, a term coined by Wired senior writer Jason Parham, who hoped there would be a rise in Black directors on large-scale projects. A short list. Clemency, director, Chinonye Chuku, C-H-I-N-O-N-Y-E, C-H-U-K-W-U, became the first black woman to win the Grand Jury Prize for U.S. Dramatic Entry at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival. The following year, director Radha Blank, R-A-D, H.A. was honored with her Sundance's prestigious Vanguard Award for helming the 40-year-old version. In 2021, Candyman director Nia Da Costa, D-A-C-O-S-T-A, became the first Black woman to have a film debut at number one ever. Over the last five years, the Academy Awards gave Oscar to Spike Lee, Peter Ramsey, Mahershala Ali, M-A-H-E-R-S-H-A-L-A, and Regina King, 2019, Matthew A. Cherry and Karen Rupert Tolliver, 2020, Daniel Kuluya, K-A-L-U-U-Y-A, her, Tiara Thomas DeMille, Trayvon 
Free and John Baptiste, B-A-T-I-S-T-E, 2021. And Ariana DeBose Amir, A-H-M-I-R, Questlove Thompson, and Will Smith, 2022. In 2016's Captain America Civil War, T'Challa prophetically says, In my culture, death is not the end, which aligns with many African religions that celebrate one's passing. Cooliger and his cast and crew uplifted this tradition from the page to the soundstage. We invoked Chadwick's spirit on a daily basis. All of us found a way to pay tribute to him in different ways, Nyong'o says. The line producer proposed not having a number one person on the call sheet. And so there was no number one. And we started with the number two onwards. And when Ryan told me that, I just wept because everybody just wanted to carry him with us. When asked how proud Bozeman would be of what they've done, the Oscar winner doesn't hesitate. We visited his resting place before we started filming, and we had that moment as a cast. We went with the new cast who hadn't met him as well. It was our way of continuing this journey. It really doesn't feel like we have anything to prove to his spirit. I feel very, very centered about how we brought him along with us. Ryan had an artist make this necklace that has Chadwick's image on it, and he wore it every day. So he's been with us. He knows what we did. He inspires what we did, Nyong'o shares. We honored him unabashedly and unapologetically. Long live the king. This article was titled Forever After. Letitia Wright, Lupita Nyong'o, Danai Gurira, Winston Duke, and Dominique Thorne return to Wakanda. The next article is an opinion piece from News One titled Extending Postpartum Medicaid Coverage is More Important to Addressing the Black Maternal Health Crisis. Written by Angela Grayson. G-R-A-Y-S-O-N, News 1, October 1st, 2022. After one of my pregnancies, I found myself listlessly counting down the days that passed after giving birth to my daughter. At the time, I could not explain what fueled my low feelings and emotions. Later on, after I had gained access to high-quality care, I was able to recognize my countdowns as coping mechanisms while I experienced undiagnosed postpartum depression. At the time, I did not know because due to barriers like not having Medicaid for more than 60 days after my delivery, I could not access a provider who could help me navigate my postpartum mental health. My experiences mirrors that of thousands of black women who remain unable to access high-quality postpartum care due to barriers such as Medicaid expansion limits after their pregnancies. As Director of Advocacy and Outreach at the Lighthouse Black Girl Projects, I work with colleagues and activists to improve health care equity for Black women in Mississippi. The Black maternal health crisis continues to proliferate across the nation, 
black women experience pregnancy complications and higher maternal morality rates than white women. Black women are five times more likely to report having unmet postpartum needs and twice as likely to report having postpartum depression compared to white mothers. Having higher education and income does not protect black women from tragic pregnancy and postpartum outcomes. It remains a race and gender issue. Mississippi has particularly poor black maternal health outcomes. The state overall maternal morality rate is double the US average. And within that context, black women have triple the maternal morality rate of white women in the state. Expanding Medicaid across through SB 2033 would save lives. Legislators and community members alike must appreciate that access to high quality health care during postpartum remains one of the most critical tools for improving black maternal morality rates in Mississippi. Yet the state continues to limit Medicaid coverage for new moms. SB 2033 was initially introduced in 2021 and passed the Senate in 2022. Initially, SB 2033 was stalled in the House's Medicaid committee. When that happened, activists at the Lighthouse set up digital days of action, town hall meetings, and more to push people to contact Medicaid committee chair Joey Hood and urge him to move the bill to the Senate floor. Our efforts paid off, but the House delayed the bill until the calendar deadline, which effectively killed it on May 9th, 2022. On September 27, the Senate Committee on Women, Family, and Child hosted a Senate hearing on maternal health. Our members, along with members of other Black women-led organizations, attended and demonstrated the importance of this legislation. We provided testimony, shared data, and highlighted the experiences of real mothers in Mississippi. We are living and breathing representation of why expanding Medicaid matters for Black moms. We are the data. We understand that oftentimes the most vulnerable people have the biggest difficulties with knowing or using the resources allotted to them. This article is titled, Extending Postpartum Medicaid Coverage is Important to Addressing the Black Maternal Health Crisis. An opinion piece written by Angela Grayson, October 1st, 2022. All the for the African-American Hour. My name is Rosemary Ankwe. Thanks for joining me.